0: just before you start listening to this podcast a reminder that we have a special subscription offer you can get 12 issues of the spectator for 12 pounds as well as a 20 pound amazon voucher go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer
1: hello and welcome to the spectators book club podcast I'm Sam Lee, the literary editor for The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by Samantha Harvey, a superb novelist whose works include The Wilderness and The Western Wind, most recently, a professor of creative writing, and now a memoirist whose new book is called The Shapeless Unease, A Year of Not Sleeping. It's the description of insomnia. Samantha, can you just, before we start talking about the book as a kind of literary artefact, tell us a little bit about kind of the circumstances that gave rise to it what happened
0: yeah well it's a good place to start but in a way the question I feel least qualified to answer because I don't really know what happened I was a really good strong robust sleeper and then within a a matter of weeks I was suddenly uh, an extremely poor and almost non-sleeper and there were a few factors that played into it for sure there was quite a very sudden bereavement in the family a few other things happening in my family that were impacting on all of us Uh, I'd moved house and there was a bit of road noise there were other things going on in life that I was kind of irritated by and upset by but I think taken together they weren't really quite enough to account for this sort of catastrophic loss of sleep and I think it's one of those great enigmas I'm not sure I'll really ever understand. I think before I had insomnia, I'd had sort of quite persistent anxiety for a couple of years, which seemed to dovetail in uh, with sort of almost hilarious symbolism with my 40th birthday. <laughs> if I sort of hit middle age and then thought, right, now it's time to fall apart. <laughs>
1: well, it's kind of um, traditional in some It's respects. traditional,
0: yeah. yeah. So all of those things were, were going on. I think that anxiety played into it to a large part I was very anxious about things going wrong and, and I think in a way I I sort of it was a self-fulfilling thing that I was sort of finding a catastrophe to happen because I was so much anticipating it but it's difficult it's difficult to really understand what it was.
1: I mean you do talk in the book you sort of approach it from all these different angles in some ways I'm sort of interested in the way the book took the form it did because it's You know, it has this title, The Shapeless Unease, and it's not a shapeless book, but it's a very unusually shaped book.
0: Mm. I mean, is it a
1: book that you were writing while you were in the thick of it or something you were writing retrospectively?
0: Yeah, I wrote it while I was in the thick of it, very much. And it was a support to me and a means of catharsis and expression. And I had no notion that I would sit down and write a book about insomnia. In fact, if I'd had that thought, I couldn't have written it because I was so exhausted, I was daunted by everything. I was daunted by having to clean my teeth. I was daunted by just the idea of getting out of the house in the morning. I couldn't have embarked upon a book and I I wasn't writing a novel at the time and for the last kind of 15 years of my life I've had a novel on the go and I think I was just so utterly lost in it that I reached to the one thing I knew how to do by instinct and that was writing. So I started writing what ever came and in whatever register it came and whatever form it took or voice it, I approached it in a very uncurated way I just wrote whatever happened to be on my mind
1: because a sort of third person and I think second person and first person and there's even you know fragments of fiction in it as well yeah, I mean yeah. did you when you came to kind of pull it together give it a a sort of shape do you think this needs to go here and that I mean
0: there was a little bit of that at the end when I I knew that it was going to be a book that was going to be published which I was sort of delighted by in a way because it gave some sort of poetry to the to the suffering <laughs> that something's come out of it that's satisfying in its own way but also incredibly exposing and daunting and I hadn't ever published anything before that was in any way autobiographical so At the point at which I knew it would be a book, I didn't change it very much structurally at all. I I kind of shuffled a couple of pieces around so that it gave it a a better flow. And the book moves ostensibly, I guess. It moves through the night, so there are sections that are sort of 11 o'clock, midnight, and then every so often i have another section that it has a time attached to it and it moves from 11 at night to sort of 7:30 in the morning of a, of a sleepless night and that was already all of those parts were already embedded in there but i hadn't given them that overt structure before so i added that structure into it and that was really the only kind of design that i imposed on it i think the rest was quite quite gratifying to me to to discover that I have, after all these years of writing, some kind of narrative instinct. <laughs> I didn't really know I had that because you have to work so hard at a novel and everything feels so conscious and controlled, even when you're it's going well and you're under some kind of spell and flow. With this book, there were, it was all just flow and instinct and, and it was quite good to discover that Within that there a narrative had quite naturally emerged well it does seem to i mean in the
1: the experience in some does seem at least as you describe it in the book to have in some ways as you say sort of changed your understanding of how how your writing and the writing process works. I mean you talk towards it about saying you, know, you used to think writing was the conscious part of you harnessing the unconscious, mm. and you've ended up thinking it's sort of the other way around is that yeah
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, it has changed the way I think about writing and certainly changed the value I place on it. I've always loved writing and it's been what I do, so it, obviously it's important to me, but I hadn't ever quite realised how much of a a life-saving pursuit it is. It it really did save me, writing this book, I would say. It was probably, it's not to um, Save
1: you from madness.
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's an interesting parallel between writing and dreaming and I talk about a little bit in the book and when you're not really sleeping very much and often the sleep I had was very light, you're not really dreaming much so all of that kind of work of the subconscious that happens when you're dreaming isn't being done and there's something that's quite purifying, I don't know Is purifying the right word, we sort out a lot of our kind of inner tussles and inner, inner, inner battles through dreams and I think writing replaced the dreaming process for me it was sort of became a the the next best thing you know (laughs) And and a form of lucid dreaming because I did have some kind of conscious control over it and it was quite miraculous to me to be able to see that that alchemy that happens when you you just take whatever is there in your subconscious which is quite available to you when you're very sleep deprived because all the filters have gone and then you start alchemizing it into sentences and then suddenly, or maybe not so suddenly you have, you know, hundreds of sentences thousands of sentences and together they amount to something that's bigger and wiser than you are and there's something so fulfilling about that and consoling yeah
1: and you take consolation also in the words of others i was thats that wonderful line from Philip Larkin about the million petal flower of being here yeah sort of becomes a totem for you doesn't it
0: yeah i i would um often go online at night and and just see what I could find that might give me some some solace or often you know, try to understand. You know, sort of Google where is my insomnia? Co- insomnia coming from? You know, as if Google could possibly know the answer to that. And I had found that that poem, the old fools, in a in a, a a book about poetry, not actually a Philip Larkin poetry book. And I looked up that poem, and I was just so, you know, at four a.m. or whatever. I was so utterly spellbound by it. It seemed. It summed up something for me about this kind of awful, painful, wonderful enigma of being alive, that that inside of life is death and inside of death is life, and the two things are kind of inseparable.
1: Yeah, it should be said that actually it's a very uplifting line, but it's set in an extremely bleak poem, isn't it? Right, isn't it?
0: absolutely, yeah, as a lot of Larkin's poems are, and they're so infused with death. And insomnia is so infused with... With death, You know, it's there, it's sort of inside it. There's something, I mean, all of the obvious parallels with, with death. Um, but people,
1: I mean, often think of sleep. I remember later Nita Roddick saying that she, she didn't like to sleep because she felt sleep was a little slice of death under the door. But being awake is more so, is it?
0: Yeah, I, I was recording an interview yesterday and and the interviewer said the same, that he suffers from insomnia on and off and that he's, he's a, a, afraid of not sleeping but also afraid of sleeping. Because of that, that death that happens there, that lack of consciousness, and I think that that is quite common. It's not something I struggle with. I love sleep. I'm in love with sleep. You know, <laughs> if I get some, i It's uh, there's almost nothing I would rather do at the moment. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. <laughs> <obviously>. <laughs> Indeed. That's
1: yeah, a, a sort of terribly. I mean, it, it should be said actually. That this is an extraordinarily funny book, which maybe wasn't your intention when you were writing, but you're you're so cross a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. I think sort of BBC programs called "The Secret Lives of This and That," Brexit, and yeah. There's one bit which which feels like a sort of absolute perfect double bind where you realise you're dreaming. Yeah. And you're like, "Hooray, I'm asleep," and that wakes you up.
0: Yeah, I do that all the time. Yeah. I think, what, yeah, why am I standing in the middle of a dual carrot? Oh, I'm dreaming. Oh, I'm awake.
1: <laughs> <laughs> in the book, your you, your partner appears, but is quite a sort of, you know, quite a shadowy figure. Is that out of respect for his privacy? Or is it that it's such a solitary experience, he has no part to play in it?
0: It's a really good question. When um, I gave the manuscript to my American editor, she said at the end she said you know I I just I have one big question around this which is where was your partner (laughs) and he he was and is very much there and has been an incredible support to me it hadn't even occurred to me until that point that I hadn't really written anything about him and so I talked to my editor about it about the prospect of putting in a bit more about him and I felt that I just didn't want to and I would like to say it was out of respect for its privacy but I think it was more to do with the fact that insomnia is so isolating and this book is so obsessively self-interested <laughs> and self-concerned because that, that's how you feel, you know, you're, you're deprived, you feel like you're dying for lack of something and all you can think about are your own needs, at least while you're in those those very kind of extreme sleep-deprived states. And the book is a kind of simulation of that. Nobody else can touch that. Nobody else can help you. Nobody can give you sleep. No one can help you sleep. There's something it feels like you're in a kind of isolation chamber and nobody can reach you there. And I think that's why he doesn't really appear in it. And neither does anybody else really except a sort of peripheral figures here well, your acted. cousin appears but your yes.
1: cousin appears as a, very, as a sort of thread running through it yeah I mean were you very close growing up because you seem to be in the we, vignettes you share
0: we were fairly close growing up we weren't close as adults at all because you know just life geography separating us so it wasn't our closeness that most disturbed me about his death but we were close as children we spent a lot of time at our at our nan's house and I think that the fact of his death is so implicated in this book because he died at almost exactly the time my insomnia started and I don't think there was a causal relation there but there was a kind of correlation, the two things happened together so they became very much part of the same thought process for me that I would lie awake and I would think about him being buried because I he was my contemporary the same age as me and I don't think I'd known anyone, any of the people I have known who have died or have been cremated, and I was very concerned by the fact that he was buried. I was very troubled by about the idea of him underground, and I kept thinking. You Google
1: him in very, or you Google what's happening to him in very great detail.
0: Yeah, when, I know. Was that helpful? Probably not. I mean, most of most of the bizarre, obsessive, neurotic behaviour that you. Follow when you're sleep deprived isn't helpful at all. I think you, you sort of. I would take myself down all sorts of paths of of terror, just because of not knowing what else to do. Is the I mean, actually, there's a lot of
1: literature about sleep and dreams. Is there much of a literature of insomnia? I mean, are there? I'm mean, knowing there's some insomnia writers. I mean, David Badil's written about it. Mm. I mean, there are. You know, there are a few of you out there, but is. Is there a great kind of literary treatment of it?
0: I don't know. I instinctively I want to say no. I know there was a book that was that came out a year or two ago called Insomnia by Marina Benjamin, oh, which yes. mm-hmm. I haven't read, but by all accounts is is a really sort of beautiful, sort of compendious, short but compendious account of her insomnia with a sort of a slightly different angle to mine i think it's slightly less mad in its delivery <laughs> than mine
1: you'll find yourself doing late night literary festivals together right?
0: <laughs> yeah that's not a bad idea i don't know that it's that it's written about much maybe it is and I, I don't know i mean i can't read anything about insomnia really i can't i i, I can't bring myself to find out about other people's experiences at the moment because I still feel too kind of traumatized by it. There is a passage in it that interests me
1: that you sort of seem to suggest or at least it leads you to theorise, you know, it does leads you down these rabbit holes of, you know, what does it mean about the self? What is the continuity and the buffering between days. And you go down down this rabbit hole of Daniel Everett's research into the and I can never pronounce them right, it's Piraha piraha,
0: I think it's Piraha.
1: Piraha tribe. Mm who are thought to live in the ab- present it's a language that has no recursion and has no verbs for tense also it said though i think that's quite disputed isn't it did you do i mean did you kind of go deeply into that or did it feel more like a kind of metaphor
0: well in truth i can't at all remember why i became so interested in the piraha i can't remember how i i came to know about them i know they are quite well documented but I don't know where I crossed paths with the documents on them. I don't know why I became so temporarily obsessed by them, although that's one of the characteristics, of, for me at least, of being very sleep-deprived, is having this sort of maniacal kind of obsession with certain things that doesn't last very long, and then moving on to something else. And so for the time that I was interested in them, I read an awful lot about them, but it only lasted for three weeks or so, and then I couldn't contain that interest somehow anymore.
1: I mean, as you get tired and tired and you're more sleep deprived, I mean, so describe how you get sort of manic energy. Is there, I mean, just I haven't experienced it. You know, one reads about sleep deprivation, psychosis, but I mean, is there not a point at which you just sort of collapse? How does, it, how does it work? How does it feel?
0: Well, it feels a lot like you're going mad, and you probably are, in a sense whatever that means you feel physically just everything seems out of sync and uncoordinated and your memory goes and terrible headaches, sort of bodily aches everywhere and mentally there's a... There's a for me it, it, it was we're characterized by becoming more and more wired So the less sleep I had, the less I was able to sleep. I didn't ever seem to reach a point of utter collapse. I needed to collapse, but I probably needed to take a sleeping pill in order to to do it, and then I might sleep for, you know, 10 hours or something, which would be, you know, an enormous amount of sleep for me. But by that point, I was sort of really, you know, on the brink. But the, the more exhausted I would become, the less I could sleep. There's this sort of horrible, intense edgy, raw energy about it that builds and builds and never seemed to reach a point of collapse. I would always think, um, surely I will just collapse at some point, but never did. And I've always been somebody who, if anything, has had an excess of energy rather than a deficit. So that, that really became a problem for me, that I would just keep energising myself with adrenaline and you do just feel full of adrenaline that's really one of the most unpleasant things about it You make a distinction in the
1: book between which is where the tiger on the cover I think comes mm. from, between fear and anxiety and insomnia seems to this perfect vicious circle of both, can you explain that distinction?
0: Yeah so I, I learnt that fear and anxiety are not sort of the, the same thing we conflate them but they're not the same thing and they happen in different parts of the amygdala and Fear is about the response to a threat and your your response mechanisms are fight, flight or freeze as as we well know. Anxiety is the response to a perceived threat. So it it's a more of a self-fulfilling thing because you perceive the threat so you become afraid of it, more afraid of it, and so you perceive it more, and so on. It doesn't have to have any real cause and it led me to wonder about what which insomnia is because everybody would say you're just anxious you know you can't sleep because you're anxious and I think I'm not anxious I'm terrified and the problem with insomnia and sleep deprivation is that the thing that you're afraid of which is not sleeping isn't a perceived threat it's a real threat Because sleep deprivation is a real threat. It is the tiger in the room, you know. So you get this horrible self-fulfilling loop where you become afraid of something that you're entitled to be afraid of because it's life-threatening. Because you're afraid of it, you bring it into being, which is much more like anxiety where you create the problem by being anxious about it. So I think my analogy for it is like if you're starving because there's no food in the fridge that's that's fear but the fear that you have with insomnia is because you're starving you fear that there's no food in the fridge and that is what empties the fridge so it's your fear of there not being any food that the, creates the lack of food and so it becomes a really intractable problem there is
1: a section of the book or a section that runs through the book which <laughs> About mm.
0: <laughs> no. well yeah Well, indeed what's the role of it when I learned that the book was going to be published I thought well you know my publisher will ask for that story to be taken out because it's completely random it's not about insomnia at all It's a self-standing short story, albeit it's divided into parts in the book, so it doesn't all come at once, as you say, about a man who robs a cash machine and leaves his wedding ring there. I mean, I wrote it in that same distracted state that that so defines sleep deprivation. I had written for the bit about the Piraha tribe, I was talking about recursion in language, and... I gave an That's example. Embedding
1: clauses inside clauses, right?
0: Yep. And I gave an example of a recursive sentence. And the, the example which I just kind of pulled out of the air was about a man who robs a cash machine and leaves his wedding ring there, and then is is afraid because his wife will go mad that he's lost his wedding ring and so on. And then a bit later on, you know, maybe a couple of weeks later, I thought, I know what I'm going to write that short story. So I started writing it, and then. I mean, I'm not a short story writer at all, and it just kind of poured out in a couple of days. And then I found that within the short story, there were things about my own autobiography, about my own life and my childhood, and the circumstances of my parents' divorce. And I thought, that's really interesting to see that play out. I know that that's what happens when you write but all of the things that were, were kind of preoccupying me while I was awake, I sort of snuck into this short story which seemed to be nothing whatsoever to do with me and yet was everything to do with me and I, I think that's its role in the, in the book if, if anything, that it's a sort of comment upon writing itself about writing fiction and the inevitability of putting yourself on the page and there is I think I might quote this wrong with I think there's a a in quote that says it's as impossible for a writer to put themselves on the page as it is for them to pull themselves up by their own hair <laughs> and in a sense that may be true and paradoxically it's a it's as impossible for a writer not to put him or herself on the page as it is to to pull him or herself up by their own hair so it's a it's a funny thing that goes on in fiction that the inevitability of finding yourself in your fiction and also of of evading yourself of yourself being scattered throughout ciphers and codes who in the form of characters and language and so on
1: yes you've also got' a sort of like rebuke to yourself i mean it, I think it's my pure accent. is it the western wind that begins with the i sleep mm. i sleep like I sleep like angels or what I sleep I've, the I've, sleep of angels I sleep the sleep of angels that's yeah. it and you're really cross with the you who wrote that because it's but <laughs> <laughs> nothing of insomnia
0: yeah I mean I spent a lot of time being cross so sometimes I was cross with myself or often um, I think I had to do a, an event for the Western Wind and I, I was just looking through and I saw that first line which is dust and ashes though I am I sleep the sleep of angels and I thought I, who was I to talk about sleep? I knew nothing about sleep. And then there's a, you know, in the next sentence or so, the, the main character goes on to talk about how he'd slept badly that last night. And I thought, who's he to complain about his sleep? And who was this maverick to write about it? She didn't know anything. How did she even have the audacity to use the word sleep in a book? She knew nothing about sleep. And I got very cross with myself. <laughs> <laughs>
1: To to those readers who might or listeners who might find this a kind of counsel of despair, it is called a year of not sleeping, and the year we assume touch wood is more or less over. I mean, you sort of towards the end you say you know, it's not quite as glibly as this, but you sort of say I found the cure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's quite tongue in cheek that the last section is called a cure for insomnia, and it's well, it's very tongue in cheek. I haven't found a cure. It's certainly. A lot better than it was but I still struggle uh, and very ongoingly with sleep so it was around about a year by the time I'd finished writing that book but <laughs> it's been more like two years now but the, ex- the very extreme severe kind of tormenting and debilitating phase of it seems I hope to be over.
1: And do you have a have a sense that You've learnt from the experience about... the. I mean, you say you're not sure what the roots to it are, but that it's, it has been kind of a learning experience or has it just been an unremittingly horrible thing that
0: you can't make sense of? I've definitely learnt. It's been an unremittingly horrible thing that I can make some sense of. And in as much as I can make some sense of it, I've learnt from it. I've learnt a lot about writing. About the importance of writing in my life and my and sort of it's renewed my faith in in the point of writing and and my own need to write and that's independent of whether the world needs me to keep writing. I need to keep writing, and I think that's a very galvanizing thing to to discover in in your hopefully sort of mid career when things can take a bit of a slump I've learned a lot about myself and my own impulses and my and, and fear you know that what it is to be afraid I've spent a lot of time being afraid at three in the morning and afraid of all sorts of things and I think if I could say there's been one really kind of positive thing that's come out of it is that I've been afraid of so many things that I now think I now realize that there's just no point you know you might as well just live there's no point being so afraid of everything and I didn't used to be afraid of everything but I think there's been a kind of midlife reckoning with everything and I, I think I'm coming through that in and sort of realising that yeah, I mean potentially there's everything to be afraid of so we we may as well not be, we may as well just live day to day, which is, a, you know, I, I guess a very trite lesson to learn but it seems to be true
1: It's oh, a good lesson. Samantha Harvey, thank you very much Shapeless Unease in bookshops now
0: You were listening to The
1: Spectator's Books podcast. Very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.